Hello there, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me yet again for another fascinating conversation living at the nexus of art, entertainment, culture, and society. Uh, do me a favor, however you're consuming this podcast, please leave a like or a review or a comment. We're actually now on Apple Podcasts, so please leave me a, uh, a some positive reviews there. We have nothing but five-star reviews on Spotify. Uh, I'm still as stunned as 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 you are. I, I haven't paid anybody, I promise. Um, I'm really trying to grow the podcast and the YouTube channel this year. I deeply appreciate you if you subscribed. Um, lastly, you know we're trying to move the culture, grow this community. So I need you to help me grow it by uh, sharing this video as much as possible. If you love it, share it with your friends. And if you hate it, why then share it with your enemies? Now, all that said, you know. Nowadays, uh, geek culture, nerd culture, it's its more mainstream than ever. Anime is more popular than ever. Uh, video games are a, a multi-billion dollar industry. I mean, the, the Super Mario film is on track to make a ton of money. You got adults talking about Pokemon and Smash Brothers, for God's sakes. Um, and recently, we've seen films based on beloved comic book heroes change the entire film industry. But... At the same time, ironically, the comic books on which they are based uh, don't seem to be connecting with audiences as they did in the past, and the sales numbers and cancellations reflect that. Now, there's plenty of outrage content out there assigning all sorts of reasons as to why this is the case, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but uh, I wanted to have a different kind of a conversation and talk about the process of creating great work, work that becomes timeless, that connects with audiences, so that we can gain uh, perhaps a clearer understanding of what these failing books and perhaps the comic book industry at large might be missing. On top of that, you know, with the rise of independent creators, perhaps those who wish to make their own way outside of the system can learn a thing or two from the pursuant conversation. And few people are as qualified to speak on these things as my guest today. He is a veteran comic book writer with thousands of titles to his name, including a record run on Batman at DC Comics, where he co-created the villain Bane along with Graham Nolan, and uh, his seminal work on Marvel's The Punisher, a personal favorite of mine as well. Uh, his other work includes extensive runs on titles as diverse as Conan the Barbarian, Nightwing, The Simpsons, and uh, predictably, SpongeBob SquarePants. Uh, <laughs> My guest is the most prolific comic book, American comic book writer of all time, with thousands of issues and over 40,000 pages in, uh, of comics in publication. He has literally bought houses off of the uh, work that he has done. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the fantastic and wonderful Mr. Chuck Dixon. Mr. Dixon, how are you doing today, my friend? Uh, uh, well, after that buildup, I'm doing terrific. Yeah, <laughs> there you I, go. I just hope I can live up to it. Well, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the purpose. We have to set the bar as high as possible to uh, induce anxiety in, uh, in our guests. Uh, you, know, well, you know, I want to start uh, at, at, at the beginning. I know you've, you've and one thing I love about you, Chuck, is that you've, you've done so many uh, podcasts with so many, um, you know, big YouTubers, small YouTubers. I think it's a really, really pretty awesome how, uh, how people like you are connecting um, with, I think, you know, a broader audience. And I think this sort of mechanism um, really has given the fans and the, you know, the average person a a, a voice and, you know, the way you're connecting with them is, is really, really great. Um, that said, I know you've gone over this ad nauseum, but, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, we got to start from the beginning. Um, how did you get into comics? Uh, 
I don't remember ever wanting to do anything else. Uh, for a while, I thought I wanted to be a milkman because I overheard the milkman tell my mom. Uh, for those of you who don't know, milkman was a guy who used to deliver milk to the house. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, and I was like, wait, where is the story going? <laughs> Did you talk about milkman and, and your mom? <laughs> no, he, I, I heard him mention he, he, he was getting off work at noon. And I thought, wow, this guy only works half a day. I didn't realize he got up at four in the morning. Uh, so from abandoning that career, uh, I just always loved comics. I mean, I read comics before I could read. Comics were everywhere when I was a kid. And I just became fascinated with the medium and uh, just began to think in terms of comics. I learned comics as a second language almost. And uh, really, there was no other, there was no plan B for me. It was get into comics or, you know, work at 7-Eleven. Um, well, you know, 7-Eleven provides a wonderful service to the community, uh, especially if you need Skittles at 2.30 uh, in the morning. I met um, all those people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you've mentioned before um, your your creative impulse, and um, that, that's a concept I think uh, that needs more exploring. Could you describe, you know, and this might be unfair to try to get you to articulate what that might be, but uh, but what? how would you describe it, and, and what is that creative impulse for you, at least? It's kind of advanced daydreaming. Uh, <laughs> you know, your, your mind just kind of wanders. I, I, I heard once that um, Jack Kirby would get so involved in his own thoughts that, that he, he could not drive a car. Because everything he saw inspired him. And, and, you know, suddenly he was not driving on Ventura Boulevard anymore. You know, he was driving in some world of his own creation. Uh, I'm not that bad, but I'm pretty bad. My mind will wander, uh, you know, especially, you know, when somebody's telling me something I don't want to hear. or you know, And uh, you just tend to think of stories all the time. Uh, it's a compulsion. You know, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, they have this idea that, um, well, part of it I'm thinking is the the link between genius and madness, as they say. But, you know, there really just are some people who, I mean, you know, one of the Chris, um, the 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 critiques of myself and my work is that I, I tend to live in my head. I mean, I, you know, I was an actor for a long time. And that's definitely a a a discipline where you have to get out of your head as much as possible. And, um you know, but then when you're able to release that, you know, it's it's both scary and thrilling at the same time. And um, and I think for for artistic minded people, for creative people, you know, being able to manage living in that realm, in the sort of fantasy realm, in the sort of imaginative realm, without losing your mind or crashing whatever vehicle you happen to be uh, commandeering at that time is difficult. So how I mean, how have you managed in your own life to sort of, uh, uh, I guess, you know, harness that impulse uh, and not have it destroy your life? Well, I, I, a lot of thanks goes to my wife. Uh, my wife has absolutely no interest in comics or anything like that. So when I stop working, I stop working uh, because she's not going to want to talk about what I do or anything like that. So, um, you know, it's uh, she sort of brings me out of that dream world into the world of reality, you know, you know, take out the trash. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, my uh, grandiose plans and this world I'm living in my head comes crashing down around me and I'm back in the real world. So, you know, it, it's, she makes it a lot easier uh, for me, but you know, it's not to make, make it sound like, you know, I'm hallucinating, you know, hallucinating or whatever, but you know, you do get deep into this imaginary world. It's almost secondary life you have in your head. And uh, particularly if I'm in the middle of a 
you know, naughty problem in a story. Uh, you know, I, I need to get away from it. And, and she she realizes that. There's where quite a few times in the past where she would just peek into the office, see me staring at the monitor and say, you know, go for a walk, you know, take mm. a break. She could tell, you know, uh, when I was in fugue state. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, get, uh, you know, get real people around you, you know, so you're not talking and thinking about this stuff 24 seven. Yeah, you know, I remember my uh, my ex girlfriend was also one of the reasons we broke up is because we both wanted to be actors. Uh, she on the West Coast, me in the East. But you know, I, I remember thinking to myself before I met her, I was like, you know, I, I really don't want to date another actress because I want to be talking about this crap all the time. And you know, it's already life is hard enough. We don't want to think about it. But uh, it, but it's it, it it makes me think about um, you know, it's not a detour. I thought I would go down, but this idea of you know your romantic life as a creative person. And the, I think a lot of people, they end up getting involved with whoever they happen to be around. And so then you end up with, uh, with two, um, artists who fall in love or whatever. And, uh, it can be a bit tempestuous, um, to, to, to make an understatement. And I mean, how, how did you two meet? Where, where did you find this, this gem of a person? Um, uh, just, you know, out and about, she was, uh, <laughs> she was, a, she was a perfume, one of those perfume assassins at a department store. Uh, that, that I went to every now and then. And, uh, you know, we met there and started talking. And, you know, she was interested in the fact that I was a writer, uh, but knew nothing, absolutely nothing about comics. To this day, knows very little. Uh, she, she didn't do anything to inform herself, for which I'm grateful. And, uh, you know, we just kind of hit it off. Uh, she's, nerdier in her, she's nerdy in her own way uh, about science and, and things like that, medicine. Gotcha, gotcha. It's, well... It's also a, a sign of your humility that, uh, I mean, well, I'm not saying that you never did this, but there's, was there ever a point where there's like an argument and you're just like, bitch, do you know who I am? <laughs> no, 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 I would never pull that. That would never work. <laughs> do you know, do you know, Batman bought this house? What's wrong no, no, with she you? Knows, she knows exactly who I am. So she brings me back down to earth if ever. You know, I get a little if I'm if I'm walking three feet off the ground, she pulls me back down, which is good. That's I I, I need that every once in a while. Yeah, Not that yeah. I have a huge ego or anything, but you know, you have a really good day, you know, and you start to think a little bit more of yourself than perhaps you should. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I totally love that. Um, you know, so for all you artists and creators out there, find you someone who's like a who's down to earth and who won't be afraid to <laughs> to sort of remind you of of who you are. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I mentioned, um, you know, in my, in my open, you know, I want to talk more about, about process and the, the actual work itself, because, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there about, uh, you know, politics and basically how, you know, uh, woke people are ruining everything, but, um, you know, that, that's sort of old and kind of played out to me. And, and it's so, it's so ubiquitous right now. Right. Um, so I, I have one question for you, um, you know, don't throw anybody under the bus, but what, I mean, what do you think? Why do you think your work has made such a, such an impact um, as opposed to other writers, do you think? Well, a lot of my durability in this business is because I never specialized. I never just wrote superheroes. I never just wrote horror. Uh, I love the medium. I mean, I love the characters, too, but mostly I love the medium. So I'll, you know, anything from Conan to SpongeBob, I mean, it's is a challenge to me. Uh, I'm writing a series of Medal of Honor comics based on Medal of Honor winners. 
And, uh, you know, that's a challenge because it involves research and, and all the rest and dealing with historians. Uh, but to me, it's that's a blast. I like the challenge. I like the interesting work. And so I think that's a large part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, is my reliability. Uh, I, I never blow a deadline. I've never, ever blown a deadline. I'm usually way ahead of deadline. So, uh, I'm, you know, I, I take being a working professional very seriously. I don't take myself very seriously, but I take the work very seriously. That's interesting. I had a, I had a teacher who said, um, you know, you're uh, playfully serious and seriously playful yeah. in a way, you know, and um, even going back on the the aspect of, of dreaming, you know, I spent a lot of my um, my training, you know, sort of hating children, um, you know, because they sort of do naturally what we want to be paid to do as professionals. You know, they they they, they dream, they fantasize, you know, the, a game of tag can be a matter of life and death. Uh, right. they're, they're such beautiful, um, beautiful, creative creatures. Um, you know, it's it's so fascinating to hear this um, because oftentimes a lot of artists, I think they balk at the idea of rules and authority and and this idea of like being on time and, and everything. You know, there's a joke in the theater where, you know, the reason that we have an opening at night is, is so we have a deadline because otherwise nothing we get done, we just be rehearsing all day before we have to, <laughs> you know, put everything out into, into the public. But um, it, it's so... I, I think it's really important to highlight that, you know, there has to be a discipline and there has to be structure. There has to be parameters uh, that, that you have to abide by in order to um, succeed, even in creative industries. And I think that's, that's hard for a lot of artists to kind of wrap their heads around oftentimes. Well, I mean, I, I always say, don't give me a goal. Give me a deadline. Just, you know, how many pages and when do you need it by? Because I'm a professional writer. You know, I'm not just a airy fairy sitting at Starbucks with my laptop pretending to be a writer. I'm actually doing this to make a living. And uh, that doesn't mean that I don't care. I care deeply about my work. All, I want my work to always be the best it can be. But, it, you know, it's still about a paycheck uh, eventually. Not, not that I haven't done a lot of spec work or done a lot of like work that was invested in a larger project with no pay. But, uh, you know, that's all creator-owned stuff. So, you know, hopefully there's a remuneration in the end for that, too. But, you know, beyond the deadlines, a lot of, you know, a lot of today's comic writers in particular seem to, to rail at working under any kind of framework, including staying within the character's parameters, uh, <laughs> you know, staying within continuity, things like that. They seem to re reject all of that. And, of course, that's what fans love. They love the consistency of the characters. They love the continuity. That's what keeps them uh, reading. So you you have to pay attention to that. Well, definitely get to um, to a character in a second. But I do want to ask because I just I just had a conversation. And um, <clears throat> at the end of this, um, this podcast, I was recording, uh, you know, the, the woman asked me, because we were talking about acting, and, and she said, you know, would, would you do it for free? And I, I immediately said no. And for me, you know, she was making it about, uh, you know, you don't you you don't really love it enough. I'm thinking to myself, I did it for free. Well, I did it for free when I was in college, you know, when the, I, I, would, I would be doing shows where sometimes the cast was bigger than the audience. You know, I did it for free when I was in training. And, uh, you know, in undergrad, I had a teacher who said, if you're good at something, um, you know, never do it for free. Right. And, um, and, and again, it's this, it's the sort of attitude, I think, among a lot of artists that, um, you know, you do it for the love and not for the money. And it's like, well, I need to eat. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and if I'm good at something and I have something to offer to to an audience, to the public, then I don't think there, you know, there shouldn't be any shame in saying, you know, I want to get compensated for the talent I bring to the table. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to walk around daydreaming and thinking of stories and thinking of characters all the time. I did it for decades before I actually worked professionally. But, you know, that's all well and good. But if you want me to turn it into something that readers can read, you know, with, with fully dramatized situations and fully well-rounded characters and a plot that makes sense, well, that costs money. You know, I can't I can't do that for nothing. I've got a, a family to feed. Yeah. Well, you know, heaven forbid that artists uh, understand economics. Um, so <laughs> we, we went. So, you know, you, you mentioned uh, character and consistency and all that stuff. And uh, so, you know, I guess the question is, you know, so your your editor calls you up and says, uh, well, you're going to work on Batman. Um, what is what what what's like the, the, the first steps you take once you know that you have that assignment and you know that you're going to write for such a, a monumental character? Well, you got to think about what you know about the character and know what possibly you don't know about the character. Because knowing a character from reading and knowing enough to write about the character are two different things. And mm. luckily on Batman, I had Denny O'Neill as a guide. And uh, Denny had an essay that he would give to all new writers explaining his take on the character, which, you know, meshed with my take 100%. Uh, and then he would guide me along the way. I mean, I call every once in a while questions saying, is this out of line for Batman? You know, uh, would this work? And he would explain why it would or why it would not. And uh, I sort of uh, took my guidance from him. More so than I think any other character I've ever written, I had a lot of, uh, you know, he mentored, you know, all of the Batman writers on Batman. So uh, that made it a lot easier because there's a lot of things. I mean, he told me things that I should have known about Batman that I'd never articulated in my head, that that I had intuited without thinking about them. Like what? And, uh, and that was an enormous help. Uh, what, what kind of things did he... Um, did well, he the importance of Robin and Alfred in, in Batman's life as a character and Bruce Wayne's life as a character because he said that as much as the fans think they want a tortured loner Batman, they really don't. And sales would reflect that. Uh, whenever they tried Batman as the, the lone Avenger, sales would plummet. And as soon as they reintroduced Robin, the sales went back up again. <laughs> so uh, he explained how they, they were a, a basically a trilogy, a triumvirate, and it was a, they, they balanced one another out to make Bruce Wayne a more relatable human character. You know, it's interesting. It makes me think about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, I thought one thing that uh, Christian Bale did in, in the, the Chris Nolan films, um, and I don't know if people really got this, but I think the way that he interpreted it is that um, I think it looks like he, his approach was that Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne is the costume, that Bruce Wayne is the mask. Yeah. And he's really himself and he's really living his authentic self when he has on the cape and the cowl, ironically. Does, do you think that, do you agree with that interpretation? Yeah, yeah, he pretends to be Bruce Wayne, but I, I loved writing Bruce Wayne sequences because um, if you were to pretend to be sort of a, an effete, dopey guy, more interested in golf and chasing women than than your own multi-billion dollar <laughs> multinational corporation, um, but you were really Batman, you were really smart, you're really intelligent, you wouldn't be able to resist influencing that side of his life. And I loved writing scenes where he would subtly 
move the Wayne Court board in the direction he wanted just by making what he thought, what Bruce Wayne appeared to be making, just an idle suggestion out of the air, which was actually the result of intense analysis and, and Bruce Bruce's, you know, sharp intellect and under total understanding of Wayne Court's business, even though he pretended to understand nothing. And, right. and I loved writing those scenes where, where he was able to do that. And then there was always the the panel of Lucius Fox, you know, looking over like, you know, what was that? It's like, th there's more to this guy than he's revealing. So, so Lucius was always thinking that Bruce had a secret, never thinking it was Batman. So, I mean, it's things like that that really make the character more rich. But yeah, Bruce Wayne is definitely a, a facade. So, you know, this comes to another question that I have, because I, <clears throat> I think about why some stories and why some characters endure. And uh, I think about, um, you know, even on the on the cinematic landscape, we have, you know, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe obviously uh, did uh, did bonkers up until very recently. Um, and um, and yet then, you know, DC would try to launch their own sort of stories and didn't quite it didn't quite go over as well. So it began me on this path of asking, like, what is it about certain stories that stick? And, you know, why is it that we, you know, like, like the Bible, for instance, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a believer, but, you know, it, it, it's not lost on me that, you know, these stories that are thousands of years old have, you know, still have an impact on us today, or even Greek plays or Shakespearean plays, hundreds of years old, thousands of years old. And so my, my question for you, especially as a writer is, I mean, what do you think that it is about Batman? Because I'm not, I'm not really a DC guy, right? I've always been kind of a Marvel guy when I was a kid. Um, I was very much into X-Men, but Nowadays, I find myself very deeply drawn, A, to Frank Castle, who we'll get into later, but also to the character of Batman. So what is it that, why does Batman endure so much? How, why has he captured the imagination and the hearts of, so, of, of, of our culture for, for decades at this point, almost a century now? Well, I mean, Batman is quite literally borrowed from you know, half a dozen other literary creations that were successful. I mean, there's a little bit of Dracula, there's a little bit of Sherlock Holmes, there's a little bit of Zorro, a little bit of the Scarlet Pimpernel. I mean, it's like, he's like an amalgamation. And then you have that kick-ass costume. <laughs> I mean, that, that is a great costume. And no matter what variations you put on it, it's still an awesome costume. And, um, you know, so Bob Kane and Bill Finger sort of built this character uh, heavily influenced by the Dick Tracy comic strip if you look at the villains and even the art style and uh, they just sort of built this upon the foundations that were already there of things that readers already liked and i think that's it i mean he's sort of like he's a he's sort of a reduction <laughs> of all these other fictional properties and 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 that's why he works i mean you know i don't know how you were when you were a kid but the first time i saw batman it's like i'd known him all my life and i was only four <laughs> It was like, wow, this guy is the coolest character ever. So uh, I, I just think he's got all the chops, and and there's so much you can do with him. He's, you know, it's it, it just endless variety of stories. Obviously, that you can tell with this character, which is, you know, we're getting on to ninety years, and he's still going strong. Yeah, totally. So, what are some things that you think that? Uh... What are some sort of no go zones for Batman? I mean, like you know, like. The, the most successful iterations of Batman, aside from your own, obviously, um, you know, when, when does a character succeed the most versus uh, when, when it fails, in your, in your opinion? Well, it, it, it fails 
and this has happened in the past, it, it fails when they when they don't portray him as the hero of the story. Um, when you know, because some writers have been assigned Batman, they really didn't want to write Batman; they wanted to write something else. So they write a story in which Batman is almost an ancillary character. Uh, that's a mistake. Uh, they also write where he's not heroic. Uh, he's not doing this for the right reasons or that he's he might be crazy and it's like that's not what we want batman is a wish fulfillment character and i hate to break this to adult fans because i'm an adult fan too but he's a childhood wish fulfillment character i mean he's ludicrous the idea of batman is completely ludicrous <laughs> it's only in the craft and presentation of the people who write him you know like i said i don't take myself seriously but i take the work seriously it's a batman very very serious uh, but he's at heart a wish fulfillment character. And I think, you know, a lot of adult fans don't realize when they read a Batman story, they're returning to their childhood. These their, their childhood fantasies of being the guy with all the answers, the tough guy, the guy who's going to be the last guy standing in any room he's in, no matter what he's up against, the guy who never gives up. And if you ever veer away from that with Batman, if you ever show weakness, you know, or complicity or whatever. Um, you've 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 left the character behind, and you've turned readers off. You know, it's fascinating, and I'm sure the sales reflect that. Obviously, it, oh yeah, it, <laughs> it you know, it's just because because here's the thing, you know, Chuck, that I that I get that I get very annoyed by, especially like in the entertainment industry. Um, there's this pervasive attitude that the creators and the producers, the writers, uh, etc., are smarter than the fans, and I say all the times, like guys. You know, you don't need an Ivy League degree or even an especially high IQ to know how something makes you feel. You don't need to know how something, you know, you don't need to be, you know, educated to, to understand how, how, what an impact something has on you. And, you know, and I love going to these different, um, you know, geek culture creators and, you know, you go down to the comment section and people are having these fierce but highly intellectual debates about the characters and about storylines and plots. I'm like, these people are smarter than the creators right now. <laughs> you know, the, the creators are like, they're missing so much of what, uh, of what, of what you just said. And, and, and they're not dumb. And when you, and when you take away these pillars of the character, even, even on a, um, on a subtle level, I mean, they really feel that. Well, I think both the DC and Marvel cinematic people, the movie people, they've sort of left the source material behind, which is an enormous mistake because, you know, you think of comics, it's this lowbrow medium. It is. It's a lowbrow medium. They used to cost a dime, 12 cents. You know, uh, they were read by kids until they, you know, they were read mostly by boys until they discovered girls and girls until they discovered boys. And, you know, new audiences came up and everything else. And through everything else, you know, implosions and drops in sales and busts and booms, comics survived all of this time. And why did they survive? Because at the core was this like raw, almost nuclear reactor of creativity of, you know, guys like Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and, you know, Denny or Denny O'Neill, Larry Hama, guys like that, who just loved this medium and just created all this stuff. They, they didn't get rich. You know, they weren't paid a lot. You know, they were paid crappy page rates, but they, they it was reliable work and they loved it and they did it. And they, and they just threw stuff against the wall to see what would work, you know, and they listened to the fans and the fans liked something, they gave more of it. They didn't like something, they gave less of it, you know, and through all that time, all this amazing stuff has been created. And, 
especially the Marvel Cinematic Universe, when it began, it paid attention to that source material. Those early movies are very close, you know, to the comics. But as time goes on, they think they have a better idea. And we see the end result. The box office is suffering. You know, people are getting fatigued with this stuff. And I see movie people say, well, we got all the good stories out of the comics. I was like, no, you didn't. You, you only scratched the surface of all the good stories, particularly in the Marvel universe. You know, think of all these, you know, epic Batman arcs and things like that that, you, you, that are untouched. Um, you, you haven't begun to mine this material. You just think you have a better idea and you're suffering for it. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do. And that's why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. If you don't drink coffee, try Katura Tea, my personal favorite, made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. Pro tip, add some ginger, lemon, honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have the perfect, sexy, soothing concoction. Support small business and this podcast and order from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Oh, man. I, you know, I not to, you know, name names or be specific, but, you know, I, I one of my biggest issues with Batman v Superman, I said, I can't believe that they're, they're trying to do Batman Return or, you know, the Dark, the Dark Knight Returns and Death of Superman in like one movie. Yeah. You know, like, like, what do you, these could be trilogies in and of themselves. Like guys, what, what do you, <laughs> what are you doing? You're, 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 you're taking all this stuff and you're ignoring all these other great stories. Um, and you know, we have an example right now. There's a, there's a weird controversy that's unfolded. I don't know if you've seen any of it, but, um, the super Mario brothers movie just came out and uh, my, my friend treated me to, to the film. And, you know, he literally texted me. He was like, I'm going to go see the Mario movie, man. You want to come along? I was like, yeah, I do actually. And, uh, so in and, and the, the professional critics right now, like on Rotten Tomatoes, it has like a 50 something percent rating. And yet the audience approval rating is like 96 percent. And it's and it's it's already grossed, you know, I think a third of a billion dollars, you know what right. I mean? And, and it's opening weekend right. and people are debating like, you know, there was a New York Times article about, uh, you know, people were afraid that uh, animated films were damaged by the pandemic. And it's like, no, guys, it's it wasn't the pandemic. It was the fact that you had all these um, these projects being created by people who you know, they had one particular ideology, but they didn't honor the source material. That's why, you know, people didn't like Buzz Lightyear because they didn't feel like it was a Toy Story movie. And right. with Mario, all, all, all they did, and there's rumors that Nintendo kind of stepped in because they tried to sort of uh, modernize the franchise and Nintendo was like, don't you dare. And, you know, the, the one of the best things about the film is that if you're an adult child, you know, and you've been playing Mario games since the 1980s, you know, or Nintendo, you see all the little references and everything. And but all they did was say, this is Mario and his brother Luigi. Here's the princess. Um, they kind of modernize it in terms of like they're not really saving the princess. But, you know, in, in a way they kind of are. But it's like, you know, Bowser's the villain. He wants to marry the the, the, the princess and he's, he tries to kidnap her. And it's it's that simple. And that's why people loved it. It's so yeah. it's so easy. Like, just do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, don't think too hard about it. You know, think about what what does the audience expect and then try to exceed their expectations, not thwart their expectations. I mean, the, the, the Buzz Lightyear movie is a perfect example. You know, they don't get Tim Allen to do the voice. Uh, they had a perfect opportunity to do this wonderful science fiction pastiche because this is supposed to be the story that the toy is based on. I mean, they could have gone wild with a story. Instead, they 
had messages to impart and and basically tell a dreary science fiction story you know where they should have had you know uh you know buck rogers on steroids you know just mm -hmm. go nuts so uh coming back a little bit to more about to to process and it's going to be like sort of a basic um you know, one-on-one -on -one question, you know, when, when you do shows, you have a talk back afterward, people are like, how do you learn all your lines? You're like, oh, geez, I can't believe you asked me that question. Um, so, so in your opinion, you know, talk a little bit about story structure, um, you know, and, and, and your process of creating a story, you know, is what, in your opinion, are the elements of a, of a, a, a well-told story? And what do you think is missing from what elements do you think are missing from, uh, these books today? Well, um, when I look at books now, what primarily is missing is action. Um, comics are an immediate experience. Every panel, every page must delight in some way. Uh, and they seem to have forgotten that. I see comic after comic where the bulk of the issue is people sitting around talking while eating. And these are superheroes. I mean, who cares? Well, why do you want to see that? Um, you, you have to open strong. You have to open in a way that engages even new readers. Uh, we were told in DC Comics to treat every comic as if it was a person's very first comic. And I took that to heart. So even if I was in the middle of a four-issue arc, I would make sure those opening pages drew you into the story and uh, in some way and kept you. Because, you know, I don't want to write a comic book story that somebody puts down in the middle. <laughs> you know, I want them compulsively turning pages. And so I think that's a lot of what's missing, like real drama. Um, there seems to be messages imparted rather than an actual story and characters that you can relate to because you should be able to project yourself on these characters. Like I said, they're wish fulfillment characters. You have to be able to relate to them. So that's, that's paramount. Um, you know, as far as story structure, I don't know. I kind of intuit story structure. Mm -hmm. um, when I was at DC, they they made all the writers made all the writers. They strongly suggested all the writers take Robert McKee's story structure course, which is a, a course taught by a screenwriter. That's a wicked three day seminar. You you this guy gets you out of bed in the morning and puts you to bed at night. I mean, it's it's boot camp <laughs> for writers. But the DC editors wanted us to take it so we would all have a shared language, and they paid for it. So I got a weekend in New York on DC. So it was great. Nice. Uh, but I got a lot out of it, a lot out of it. And some things I didn't agree with. Um, and at the end of it, Denny said, you know, did you, did you get a lot out of it? I said, yeah, but I still don't understand three act structure. And mm -hmm. he said, you do it naturally. You don't need to understand it. He says, you do it without knowing what you're doing. <laughs> so, so there's that, you know, uh, there's a lot of intuition involved and it's, it's like grammar to me. If it sounds right, it is right. Um, you, you know, whether or not you have a story when you're done. I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten to the end of comic scripts and go, man, this is missing an element. And I just let it sit for a couple of days and then figure out what that element is that that story needs to really lift it, you know, above mediocre. You know, I just, I, I love that so much because, you know, it, it, it speaks to me, you know, we talked, we, we spoke at the beginning about the creative impulse and there really is, I think, you know, uh, there's just a creative instinct that people have. I mean, I, I experienced the same thing as an actor and as a singer. It's just, you know, you like you, 
you follow your gut, you follow your intuition. And like, you're like, I know this is good. I know this is working. I know this is right. And you can't explain it. You can't articulate it. You can't, you know, you just, you, you literally just feel it. And it's an amazing kind of thing. But boy, you need it. You need that feeling that this is right because you're going to have people telling you it's not. Yeah. And you can't walk away going, maybe they're right. Maybe I am fooling myself. No, you got to walk away saying they just didn't get it. <laughs> well, do you know, that's what keeps you going on. Cause if you want to work up to professional status, you're going to need that hard shell. Of, you know, you're going to need that ego, that, that alpha aspect of your personality to make it through to the other side. You know, it, it reminds me of a, something that uh, one of my teachers and I, we kind of co-coined uh, co this phrase together. It's the, the, the arrogance of generosity, meaning, <laughs> that, meaning that as an artist, you, you have to be arrogant enough to presume that you have something to offer to an audience that, that needs to be listened to. But, you also, but there's also sort of a self-sacrificial um, aspect of it, too. It's like you're, you're generous with your, your talent, you're generous with your gifts, and you're, you're giving it all away. And um, that, that sort of harkens... Um, what you're saying, it makes me think about that so much because there is this ad attitude of like, yeah, you know, you have your opinions, but F you, I know this is what it's supposed to be. And I wonder if now, you know, because it makes me wonder if we have a, a culture that, that could create another um, another Chuck Dixon or I spoke to, um, it's funny, I spoke to Chris Claremont, you know, and he said the same thing, you know, you, you, you have to rope people in and, you know, you have to grab the audience and, yeah. and keep them and keep them there. And um, but you also have to have the the strength of your conviction to be able to say, uh, -uh. I mean, all the actors that I love had that, thing, you know, Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington, that, you know, they they know they know when when things are working and all, you know, and I, I, I just I wonder if part of the issue today is that we have a culture right now that it doesn't. I mean, you mentioned alpha. Right. And it's a culture that sort of devalues men and masculinity and. Um, and these sort of traits as toxic. And I'm like, you know, even, even in the, the great, the brilliant female uh, artists that I know, you know, they, they also have that like F you attitude of like, no, this, this is right. And everything now seems to be kind of sanitized for everyone's protection. And, you know, we have to make sure that everyone's taken care of and everyone feels safe. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I actually had a teacher who said, you know, a selfish actor is not always a bad thing. And I didn't understand what he meant at the time, but it's like, yeah, it, you have to be selfish in protecting your own process and your own, your own sort of creative impulse. And I feel like that's sort of what you're saying too, as a writer, you know, but do we have a culture now that even creates people who are able to say with confidence, like, no, go away. This is it. Well, particularly in comics, there's a problem. I mean, uh, I worked for a comic experience for a couple of years. Uh, it's a, it's a website that, you know, teaches you the comics medium and does a very good job. And they would have, they, they, they paid me for a while to review students' scripts, basically mark their papers. So I would review their scripts. I read some amazing, amazing scripts by, you know, newcomer writers, like, you know, people that want to get in the business and they were better than most of the stuff being published. And yet I've never seen, I haven't seen a lot of those people working professionally. Uh, so you got to wonder what criteria are the comic companies choosing for their creative talent. And what we're seeing is a lot of people who have all the credentials in the world, except the ones needed to be a comic book writer. And they're also, they have no real interest. They're not lifers. They didn't, these, these new crop of writers didn't get into comics for life. They got in comics as a way uh, to get work at Vanity Fair or sell their screenplay or sell their novel. 
uh, or get a job at MTV. It's like a resume enhancer. And that's a huge mistake because they don't have enough of an interest in the medium to learn anything about it or even to do a good job. Uh, it's kind of um, it's kind of kitschy and corny and campy to have said, I worked at Marvel, I worked at DC, you know, um, rather than this is what I want to do the rest of my life and I want to get better and better at it. You know, and I want to build a fan base and I want to build a readership, you know, and I want to you know, create my own space in, in this uh, in this world of comic books. But, you know, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of that anymore. You know, I think there's also an element of, um, and I began to notice this, you know, with the rise of South Park, even though I love South Park, you know, but it, it's the sort of cynical, com uh, the cynical culture where you kind of comment on everything and you have to be sort of at a remove from everything. You know, you, you can't really invest too much in, in something. I mean, what because what it sounds like to me is like, you know, there's sort of a romantic notion of, you know, I'm I'm dedicated to this craft for for life and I love it so much. And it seems like nowadays it's not it's not cool, really. It's not cool to be that excited or that or that passionate about no. something. And uh, I wonder if that's part of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, they obviously don't. You know, the way they trash characters and the way they trash past continuity, it's obvious they have no respect for the readers or the characters. You know, and, 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 and he, you know, you see it in the numbers. They, they've chased the vast majority of readers away, never to return. Uh, you know, even, even lifelong fans who like wanted to have every issue of action comics are like, I, I can't take it anymore. I, I can't look at this stuff anymore. I got to walk away. It's a shame. It's a shame. They've, 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 they're like actively trying to destroy something and none of, nobody's paying for it. They're going on to bigger and better things after this. Yeah, well, they're reading and the fans are reading manga. You know, and yes. there's, also the, there's also the element of, um, and I was talking to a, um, a lawyer friend about this actually uh, recently. And, um, you know, we live in very, very anti-establishment sort of times. And you mentioned you know, or you alluded to hiring practices at some of these, at some of these places. And, you know, for myself, I've observed um, over the past few years, especially that, um, and I've, and I've had this conversation with my other artist friends as well Is that, you know, we're seeing that the just structurally, you have these institutions, whether it be academia or, you know, the corporate world or politics, you know, is that they, they, or science, they, they push out people who are, you know, maybe radical thinkers, people who think outside the box, people who don't conform, who don't comply. And they create a culture of, of everyone has to, to be this way and think the same. And so what really, it seems to breed this culture of mediocrity as opposed to, you know, and people, you know, they might have prickly personalities. I know that, that you've mentioned that, um, I'm not saying you're prickly, you're, you're obviously a teddy bear, but um, I'm not saying <laughs> that, you know, but but you're outspoken and about your beliefs and, and and you don't back down from that and you have this I you have a strong backbone and you're like, I'm gonna stand up for myself and for my work. But nowadays it seems like there's so many institutions where it's like, no, you know, we have we're we're ruled by HR and everyone has to feel included. Everyone has to be, you know, safe and feel and and feel protected and, and loved. And it's like, bitch, I got a job to do. And you're standing in 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 the way of that. So it's like all these institutions seem to be pushing out people that you want to be that, that you want to be in there for the sake of creating a sort of shared culture does that does that kind of resonate at all yeah yeah i mean comics used to be you know 
boy, you, you met a special class of iconoclasts and idiosyncratic people and just plain weirdos who did comics. But, you know, that's what made comics special is these, these you know, people who just loved it. They were just freaks about the medium and, and wanted to be in it and stay in it and would do anything, you know, to basically, you know, keep getting work. And, um, you know, and you met every kind of person, you know, I mean, we would have every, every place I ever worked, we would have epic arguments about the issues of the day. Uh, but when the arguments were over, we, we went back to work, you know, writing, drawing, and that, that none of that mattered. Those, those lunchtime conversations, those arguments, they didn't matter anymore because, you know, we had the, the, the fraternity of comics that we all belong to. There's no fraternity of comics anymore because, like I said, a lot of these people were tourists. They're just passing through. And again, yeah, like you said, it's it's a lockstep. It's a scary lockstep world because, you know, you have these set of beliefs that, as you said, HR says you must believe to work here. Um, but those set of beliefs will change. You know, well, we don't want you to believe that anymore. You have to believe this now. <laughs> You know, and and there's a history of that kind of thinking with with um, more totalitarian ideolo ideologies that, yes, uh, on Tuesday, we believe this on Wednesday. Now we're going to believe this now and we're going to hate the people who believed what everybody believed yesterday. Uh, and, and you see it happening. And it's almost like the world of six months ago <laughs> is unrecognizable now. You know, with lists of words you can't say and things you can't discuss. You know, and and the thing is, like, for for the longest time, they were like, "Well, you must, we must learn to tolerate each other." Okay, great. I can, I'll tolerate anybody. You know, I, I'll take everybody one on one, uh, on a case by case basis, and I'll decide whether I want to tolerate you or not. You know, just based on who you are. You know, you're a cool person, you're fun to talk to, whatever. Um, but now we've got to celebrate everybody. And that's that takes coercion, and coercion is scary. And I, I think that's what's happening there, or, or what's trying to happen. I I see resistance everywhere. I mean, when you when you, when you actually walk away from Twitter and the television and meet people in the real world, everybody's got this like zeitgeist of we're, we're all anti-establishment now because the establishment sucks. Well, the establishment is so. <clears throat> it's funny because I say people all the time, you know, stop watching the news and get off social media and go out and talk to people. And uh, that was one of the great things. I mean, I'm in Atlanta now and getting out of uh, the city formerly known as New York and actually, you know, coming to a city where everyone works and, you know, people are trying to um, just live their lives and improve their lives. They, they frankly don't have the time or the wherewithal or the bandwidth to really care about these sort of what I call luxury bourgeois issues that have that have so dominated um, right. the, the, the current cultural zeitgeist. And it's it's a shame because you know, I say this all the time. It's like, you know, even if you're uh, a dirty, stinking commie, it doesn't really matter to me because, uh, you know, yeah. can you match harmonies? You know, how can you can you break down a scene? What kind of chemistry do we have? Um, you know, are you fun to work with, uh, you know, outside of that? And yet it seems that um, I mean, because you and I clearly we value the the individual. Right. And for 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 me, I mean, I, I consider myself, you know, I, I, I cling to the the liberal label and um and i'm sort of you know i, I thought it was a weirdo apparently not weird enough <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't seem but even even that now 
um, at least in the entertainment industry, is not it's it's not sufficient. Like you said, you know, we we've moved from from toleration to to celebration, and you know, just and how our ideas are meant to, to change. And the first thing I thought about, and it's kind of cliche, but it was like you know, we went from it's like George Orwell. We went from uh, you go from four legs good, two legs bad, to oh. to four legs uh, to four legs good, two legs better. Right. And you're supposed to just accept that. It's very strange. Yeah, and it, it it shifts all the time. And like I said, it's 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 all about celebration. And it's like, well, you know, what about what if some other minority wanted us to celebrate them? I mean, what if stamp collectors wanted us to suddenly celebrate them? And we have stamp collector parades, and we have stamp collector day. And it's like everybody would go, this is kind of weird. Yeah, it is kind of weird because it's like you know, if that's your thing and that's what you want to do, God bless you, go do it. You know, I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm I'm again, I'm like you. I'm for the individual. You know, be whatever you want to be, but don't expect me to, you know, wear your hat or your badge or whatever, uh, only because I'm afraid not to. I mean, that's weird. That's quite frankly very weird. Yeah, it's no know. way. It's no way to get love. <laughs> no, I mean, well, in the end, it's going to have the opposite effect that you wanted to have. Oh gosh, you know, and that's that's the thing that uh, sort of scares me most, um, especially as a racial minority. And and I've said this multiple times, and I think it's it's beginning to happen where you see. Um, you know, you, you go to the movies and you see a, a black face on screen and, you know, in, in previous eras where, you know, maybe there was a bit of discrimination keeping people out. Ironically, it created an environment where, you know, you had to be extraordinary, like a James Earl Jones or, or a, you know, a Sidney Poitier or a Sammy Davis Jr. or Denzel Washington in order to stand out. But now um, I wonder if audiences are beginning to pull away from this stuff and they're just saying like, not only are they saying oh, that person isn't there because, you know, they're actually good. They're just there because they're the right skin color. And then you have in comics, you know, characters like uh, like Robin and um, and Superman, you know, having this uh, this having sexual minority status imposed on them. And I think at the end of the day, it's it's going to make people say, man, I'm tired of these gay people, man, like just get out of my face. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're having the opposite effect. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if you watch, you know, like particularly you know stuff created for the streaming services and you sit there waiting for the gay moment because it's coming and it's it's not offensive it's tiresome it's tedious it's like this is coming out of nowhere and and if you're a writer you recognize this show th this scene was crammed in here at the bequest of the either the producers or the streaming service these these creators did not feel like this scene had a home here but they put it in anyway and you know, uh, and and it, and the story stops to have it happen. It's like it's like in the seventies when they you know they had their movie ratings, and all of a sudden every R-rated movie had to have the obligatory sex scene. <laughs> well, it got to a point where you're like, oh god, this again? You know, can't we skip past this part? Because <laughs> the story stops dead for the obligatory sex scene, and that's what we've got now. We've got the obligatory tolerance scene, and you know, and it's in everything. It's in almost everything you watch. And it's it, like I said, it's going to have the opposite effect or or just people just ignore it. They just don't care. And, 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 they're, and they're, you know, very rarely are they ever written in a way that makes you feel for the characters or relate to the characters. I, I can think of very few instances. I mean, one I can think of is the, the show The Wire, where they had one of the cops was a lesbian and they showed a lot of her relationship with her partner and the adopted a child and everything else. But the, 
they were three-dimensional characters and you cared about them and you understood what they were going through. And the other thing is it was honest about the kind of relationship they were in, that it wasn't a normal man-woman relationship. And they acknowledged that in the story and it made it all the more interesting and involving and engaging. But they don't put that kind of effort because I think they're being coerced into writing these things. You know, it also just that same show and forgive people, you know, there's some lawn work going out outside the window, which is perfect and not frustrating at all. But um, the, the character of I Omar. I can't hear it, by the way. So oh, fantastic. Well, the well, the character of Omar on that same show, yeah. um, you know, uh, played by the late great uh, uh, Michael K. Brown, um, you know, totally a gay character. Like there, there was literally scenes where they're, he's making out with his guy, yeah. but they but a they didn't shy away from the fact that, look, I mean, basically a lot of black people they're more socially conservative. And so there, there are scenes where, you know, they're on the street and Omar is like, you know, having some, some PDA action and other dudes are just like really weirded out by it. Yeah. And, but, but they, they also, again, they, they humanize the character and because there, there's one big plot point, um, if I recall correctly, where his paramour is kidnapped, tortured and murdered. Yeah. And I don't care who you are, the way they built that character up, like you, anyone can relate to that right. kind of like, oh, it's time for revenge now. And so right. if, even if you were like, man, I don't know about gay people, once once Omar's lover is dead, you're like, ooh, Omar about to go, he about to go ham, he, he's, something, somebody's gonna die, somebody's gonna pay for this. And that's what, that's what makes it engaging. And I think these, a lot of these people just don't understand that, you know, sure, maybe there is a, a level where, or an arena where people but even that's kind of authoritarian right like we're going to force people to accept this um but i think they would go a much longer way to creating that bit of acceptance and, tol and tolerance you know if you want to go that way that that route by simply creating characters that we could relate to based on basic you know universe uh, universal human uh, universal traits and and motivations i mean it's that simple to me well i mean the character of Omar is a perfect example. When I think of Omar, I think that guy was a badass. I never think, oh, he was a gay guy. Oh, that's the gay character. I never I never think that. But with so many of these characters, there's that one trait, and that's all they are. There's no personality. There's no other interest. You know, oh, that's the gay guy. Oh, that's the lesbian. You know, that's, you know, that's the trans character. And, and there's nothing past that. You know, to me, Omar, I think of, you know, Omar's coming. <laughs> and 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 like you said because of that because they build a three-dimensional character when when his boy toy gets tortured and killed you know it's a charles bronson movie now right you know, you're not even thinking about why he's doing it you're just thinking oh my god it's omar unleashed well uh chuck we're coming up on 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 time here and uh you know there's a lot that i wanted to get in, it, into with you but I, I love this conversation um one thing that i've gotten away from asking a lot of my guests you know i've sort of felt like maybe i'm supposed to be an ambassador in a way to the importance of um of art in our society and uh, i think people sort of ignore it to their own um, to the peril of society in a way and um so i guess my my final question for i don't i don't guess i know my final question for you because, um, you know, in the world, we talk about policy and economics and, and I mean, you see my shirt and these kinds of things. And that's all important. But at the same time, um, I think sort of sort of the more abstract benefits of a, of a healthy society kind of get glossed over. And it's been such a pleasure talking to someone who obviously, obviously is a true artist and creative person. So what do you think that uh, is the role of the artist in today's uh, in today's society? 
uh, just to help us all forget about the crap we see around us. <laughs> just a few moments of escape. That's 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 all I that's all I write for. I I I live in mortal fear of boring my readers, uh, so I just try to you know give them something to uh, thrill them or entertain them or make them laugh in any way I can. Uh, that's my job. So I mean that's the role the the role of the artist to me isn't to create art in in, in my realm is to create entertainment. I mean, maybe what I do someday will be considered art, maybe not, I really don't care. Uh, but I'm out to produce entertainment. And then a follow-up question to that would be, uh, you know, what what do you think that, um, what impact do you think it has on society if we continue to ignore art and artists? Um, I, I think it's the end of our culture, our, our shared culture, and more and more a shared global culture. And, you know, you've got, You've got mediocrities in charge of a lot of our entertainment, from music to movies, uh, to, to TV and comics. Uh, and then you, on the horizon, you've got AI. And that is the end of our culture because they're gonna start using that more and more. And, and it's easy to replace mediocre creators with AI because who's gonna know the difference? You know, so, so those of us who still can do this and still have a vital voice, and still want to fly our freak flag for the comics medium, we need to stand up now and create the wildest, craziest, most ambitious entertainment we've ever created to stand against this you know, coming um, tsunami of artificial intelligence, which is, is going to seek to replace us. I, I love that. Uh, Chuck, I know it'll take you about 10 minutes, but what are you working on now and how can people find and support you? Uh, well, you can always go on Amazon, <laughs> just put my name in, a bunch of stuff will come up. Uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing my third Conan novel. Uh, the first one's already out, uh, Siege of the Black Citadel, and uh, having fun with that. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of projects I can't talk about yet. Uh, my Rambo graphic novel, Rambo uh, First Kill, is still available on Indiegogo. And uh, Graham Nolan and I are ramping up the campaign for a second Joe Frankenstein book on Indiegogo soon. 